Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Inez. Uh, this is Wednesday, uh, June 28th, uh, w- one day early, uh, because Inez is busy traveling, doing shows and such. Uh, so we were getting this to you one day early, but same show. Um, the, uh, it was sort of, uh, you know, the, the affirmative action case might be coming tomorrow. I, I did see that they, uh, the Supreme Court is going to announce some, uh, is going to announce some decisions tomorrow. We don't know which ones. They still have the option of not releasing it. Um, so by the time people listen to this, um, you know, they might actually, they might actually, uh, uh, know the decision. Um, what's your, what's your feeling? Do you have any feeling on like the, what the Supreme Court is doing or even like the timing of like, you know, cause there, there seems like they're being a little bit political here. So do you have feelings about like sort of the timing on what they're doing here? Look, they usually release the biggest ones last. This one I think qualifies as the most controversial that they have this term. So I think it'll probably be in the last day. That's my prediction. Could be totally wrong. I mean, they, they also do it by, you know, order of who wrote the opinion. I mean, they have all kinds of, of tricks on, on how they release it. But usually the, the, the blockbuster cases come last. Because I think in part because they don't want to deal with the court, like, having protests and all this stuff as they're still releasing opinions. So they'd rather just, like, get it all out there, drop the most controversial cases, and then just split for the term, you know? Yeah. Well, I've seen some spec- speculation that it's they're trying to get the liberal ones out of the way. And then, because I think they, I think they did this last year with Dobbs. I don't know. I think Dobbs was the end or close to the end. Um, and they released everything else and people were saying, oh, they're sort of moderate. Then they came and they just got rid of Roe v. Wade, right? Um, we knew that was happening, by the way. That anyway, that was, that was leaked. Yeah, there was a leak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this affirmative action, this affirmative action thing, um, yeah, this, this will be the biggest, this will be the biggest one of this term, right? I don't think there's anything that's going to get as much attention. Um, and I think they've, I think they've done moderate. I mean, a lot of people said this on a lot of issues. They had that, uh, Indian, uh, this one with the Indian adoption thing, which I just think is just like so crazy. The facts of like these, these Indian adoptions, uh, they had the, um, uh, oh, the voting rights case, which I thought was a big disappointment, just basically went to Alabama and said, you have to have racial voting. Whatever you do, draw the district, give it to two black people because blacks are, you know, a certain percentage of states, you have to give them a black democratic seat. I mean, I think that was, that was pretty disgraceful. Um, I'll take, I'll take it if we get the affirmative action. Uh, okay. So my, my feeling is either they're being strategic here or they just, they're just chastened by Dobbs. They're just going to be, they're just going to be liberals. They're just going to be moderate. They're just afraid. And they might give us like not a very good decision on affirmative action. So I don't know which is, which. I'd say the latter is probably not true. I think they're still going to give us a good decision on affirmative action, but I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, where are you at? I don't know. I, I, I tend to think a lot of this analysis of the court politically doesn't actually reflect what's going on. Um, obviously there's a deep political divide on the court, but it's a, it's also a divide. It tracks a divide on judicial philosophy. Um, I think the only person on the court who's really thinking politically is John Roberts. Um, and he's thinking about the institutional trust in the court and the, the sort of institutional cachet of the court. I think he's ironically destroying what he cares about by making it so obvious that he is considering the politics and not the law um, over time. But uh, generally, except for in John Roberts's case, I think people overestimate how many sort of political machinations are going in. And, and that, honestly, I think that's true for at least some of the liberal justices as well, right? Um, I think that's definitely true, for example, for Kagan, or um, I think it was true for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Breyer. I, they have, like, it, it's, it's obvious that they have a political philosophy. That's why 
they do what they do and why they were nominated, right? But like this kind of pure Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, like as though those those two spectrums map perfectly onto Supreme Court decisions, I think is usually a bad. And, and look, and Gorsuch is showing this. He apparently has a long history of ruling a particular way in cases specifically about tribal rights, right? Um, and he, he he has an argument for why he does that, right? Same thing in, in Bostock. I felt like he got, I don't agree with his argument in Bostock, by the way. I think it's a terrible case, but um, I, th- I think he got a bad rap. I mean, I think he was looking at the actual text of the statute and then interpreting it um, in a way in co- combination with past uh, decisions about uniforms and stuff, right? So like people had interpreted the civil rights statutes to prohibit businesses from saying like women have to wear makeup if men don't, right? Um, and he was basically saying, well, if you tell the female employee that she can wear the skirt and then you tell the male employee that he can't wear the skirt and you're going to fire him if he wears the skirt, well, that actually is a discrimination on the basis of sex. Because if he were a woman and he wore the skirt, then he would, you know, the, so he's saying it's actually on the basis of sex. It's not a crazy argument. It, does, it ignores the the purpose of the statute. It definitely ignores what people, as you know better than I did, what people knew they were passing, right, um, in, in the Civil Rights Act. Uh, but in terms of a pure textual sort of logical interpretation, it's not as crazy as people are making it out to be, which is why, in my opinion, sex should not be part of the Civil Rights Act at all. I think it's it's just crazy to to imagine. There's just too many reasons to, quote unquote, discriminate between men and women because men and women are very different. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is why in the in the years uh, after they had to pass like all these like Congress was like for a few years went on a spree where they're like, oh, you can still have mother daughter dance, you know, at, at university, you know, universities or mother daughter, mother, son, whatever, father, 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 daughter and like separate dorms. Like it's actually statutory language that you could have separate dorms because people could have said, oh, you know, they so they, they really headed off a lot of this other stuff uh, in the aftermath of Title Nine. Yeah. OK. They basically and I, had to fix what a radical, and as you know, it was sort of a poison pill inserted in the law, right? Um, they, they thought that they, people would vote it down because sex was inserted into it, and then we ended up with it anyway. But there was just this kind of scramble afterwards to try to make this very radical law actually square with the reality that everyone experienced, right? And you're just giving a couple examples of that. Same, similarly, sororities, right, fraternities in public universities on the like strict textual reading of the Civil Rights Act are you know, are illegal. Um, but nobody wanted that. So, you know, they have a series of interpretations narrowing it. There's a bunch of like sort of cleanup from Congress that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. So that was actually, yeah. Title seven was, yeah, that was sort of, that was a poison pill title nine, uh, which they actually had to clean up that they knew what they were, they were like the people who slipped it in there knew what they were doing at that point, but nobody paid attention from my research. I, couldn't put this in the book because I couldn't guarantee it, but I don't think Nixon even knew um, about Title IX. Like, there's nothing. And I've talked to historians about this. There's no evidence he actually knew what was going on um, when he when he signed the Education Amendments Act. Uh, so you're right. And then they, I wouldn't okay, be surprised. Uh, Although yeah. Nixon supported the ERA, so which does functionally the same thing, except on the constitutional level. So I mean, Nixon supported the ERA, as did every Republican president from basically the the 50s all the way through to Reagan, who reversed the institutional support of the Republican Party of the Equal Rights Amendment. So, I mean, I'm not going to give Dixon too much credit on that one. But yeah, I, I could I could believe that there's a lot that happened. I mean, a lot happened in the 90s, as you know, that was not actually sort of um, fleshed out in public discussion, but radically transformed 
the, the legal landscape in America. Yeah. So, yeah. So some people were telling me, they were saying that Gorsuch was playing the long game with Bostock. And now maybe it's not about long game. Maybe this is just him and his, his sort of, uh, you know, autistic thinking. Maybe it was, it's just like, okay, he's going to interpret things very literally. And he's going to say, you know, man dress, woman dress, whatever. He's going to say, okay, you can discriminate based on race. Okay. That could be, that could be the decision. Uh, we know Alito, if, if that's Gorsuch, Gorsuch was also, you're right. You're right. Now that I think about it, you're right. Cause Gorsuch, uh, was in the dissent on the voting rights case. You're right. He is. He just does does want to give the Indians. Just he gave in, he gave the Indians half of Oklahoma. So he does love he does love the Indians. He does love tribal rights. Something and he then, shares with John Roberts. Uh, sorry, yeah. not John Roberts. Um, <laughs> John Marshall is what I wanted to say <laughs> way back in. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So yeah. Okay. So that yeah. You're right. Gorsuch, I think, is going to rule in the right way. Uh, and so you're going to have Thomas Alito, obviously. Barrett, I think probably, I mean, Kavanaugh and Roberts, those are the two, those are the two sort of, I think Kavanaugh might be, might actually be political. I, I, I think that him and Roberts probably. Um, and so if you lose both of them, you would not get, you would not get a good outcome in SFFA. You need at least one of them. I, I tend to think this will be a good, good ruling. Um, I guess the question will be what standard do they put forward, right? And how far do they go with it? Um, it might just be as simple as, okay, you can't practice overt quotas. You can't. So, it, 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 I mean, look, this is, I see this very much as the beginning and not the end of, of the fight against racial preferences, right? Because um, obviously the schools are going to want to do this anyway. Look at the, look at the UC system in California. They aggressively use racial preferences in admission, even though it's been illegal in the state for a long time, since Prop 209. So it's been illegal for decades and they're all still doing it. They do it under the guise of quote, holistic admissions, right? Um, and it's it's really clear from the numbers that that's what they're they're doing, but nobody has been able to to really draw out. So this is like, I guess the question is, what kind of st- a standard does the court propagate? And then the second part of the question would be, how do people who care about you know equality under the law actually go out and enforce this? I I think it'd be really interesting. Um, if we see success with drawing out these numbers from UNC and Harvard, right? Because that's basically what they did. They, they found a way to get the numbers out of these institutions. And then when you look at the numbers, there's no way that you, you, you can avoid seeing that they are penalizing Asian ap- applicants, right? Penalizing white applicants and, um, you know, giving extra points to Hispanic and black applicants. There's no way to look at those numbers and conclude that something else is going on um, to a certain extent, Um I'm wondering how successful that strategy as, a, as politics, not as law, um, as politics would be. In other words, if we could get the internal numbers somehow, either through a leak or, you know, through discovery and some kind of unrelated lawsuit from, I don't know, Google or, uh, and, and it's a little difficult because resumes don't have like an SAT and a GPA, right? But um, but you could see, like, for example, you could do an analysis on years of experience versus salary, right? You could do it on any number of things. If we were able to get that data set from from big American corporations, like, I mean, I, I'm very confident in predicting what that analysis would say, right? It's that, that Black applicants and Hispanic applicants, and maybe to a lesser extent, female applicants are heavily favored, particularly for promotion and, like, outward-facing jobs, right? Um so I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's a tactic. It, it's, it's interesting to me. Just like get this data, give it to a few smart people to like sort of crunch and see where those discrepancies are. And then even if you don't have the same legal basis uh, as you would in a public university or affirmative action context, 
you know, it's, it's, it's the PR battle to say, hey, no, these companies are practicing racial discrimination. It's what they're doing every day. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're so right that this is just the beginning of the battle because race-based governance is everywhere. The Supreme Court is probably not going to come back and say, oh, um, all use of race is, you know, you know, cause courts are conservative. They speak to the facts of the case. Their decisions have implications, right? But they don't, they usually don't come and just say, we're going to throw out, you know, 100, 200, uh, government programs. Uh, so I think you're right. So there will be like more lawsuits against universities. So the Fisher, uh, the Fisher case from uh, about five years ago, or it's probably like six or seven years ago now, uh, that was about the, uh, Texas 10% plan, where they took 10% of every, uh, you know, high school class at the University of Texas. And the idea was that this is racial discrimination because the whole point was diversity. So they're doing this sort of, uh, subterfuge to get racial diversity, right? And this is just sort of like, it's just one step removed, right? So you can, you know, the next time there's a Fisher case, anything they do that's gonna, to try to like have fewer whites or fewer Asians, uh, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be potentially challengeable, like the same way this was. Students for fair admissions doesn't have to doesn't have to retire. They can, you know, they'll, they'll still have work to do uh, after this decision. Um, well, and so there's you're, also got to right. be some kind of punishment. So um, back under the Trump administration, I was a proponent of attaching a rider to Title IV, which funds most university stuff. Um, now it's already, of course. Um, <laughs> It's already their obligation under the Constitution, and then they have an affirmer of another affirmative obligation under the federal law that governs university funds, basically, or, or um, doling out of funds to not violate the First Amendment. Um, that being said, of course, uh, fires in business because they violate the First Amendment regularly. Um, and I was a big proponent of, of basically attaching a rider that allowed basically the bureaucratic denial of funds. Um, on the basis of flouting, you can you know think about any any uh, sort of language you'd like, right? Repeated and reckless flouting of the of, of, of constitutional obligations, like the, under the First Amendment, um, because I think there needs to be some kind of administrative and immediate consequence. These cases take a long time, um, you know, fires work or or a lot of these these um, you know, and, and they're doing good work um, in terms of laying down very positive First Amendment precedent in the courts. Due process, same thing, right? Like for a long time, we have actually a couple hundred mostly young college men who were able to vindicate their due process rights in court and and win settlements from universities on the basis of violating those due process rights. Um, that being said, there aren't that many people who are willing to go through that entire long process. It's an expensive process. Um, and universities, there's a lot of universities that would rather settle a case like this every five or 10 years with the one student who's a pain in the, in the ass enough to take it all the way and get this settlement, then they would piss off, you know, th their sort of left flank on campus. And I think it's going to be very similar with affirmative action. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of levers with higher ed that a smart Republican administration with actually interested in enforcing this kind of thing. Unlike with K-12, where there are many fewer federal levers on, on universities, they are dependent on the feds. They're dependent on the feds. If they don't, if they lose access to student loan funds, most universities would close their doors.
Yeah, and this is yeah, and this is sort of how the the Obama administration pushed the Title IX stuff. Uh, you know, during the Obama administration, um, you're you're right, and I remember there was a little bit of this stuff. Like at the end of the Trump administration, it was almost I don't know, it was, seemed sort of trollish, but it was like Princeton. They investigated Princeton because Princeton said we're historically a you know a discriminatory college, and they said, oh, you do, you admitted you are racist against black people, now we're going to investigate you. Ha ha ha! I don't know if that was like actually like seriously ever going to lead it to anything. Yeah, but I- uh, those those powers exist and and they're continually used against institutions um both on the the um university and k-12 level i mean similar sort of thing we we have uh restorative justice policies in a huge number of school districts that have caused a collapse in discipline standards um because the justice you know the the um sorry, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education essentially sent them these nod, nod, wink, wink guidance letters. They're not promulgating regulations. They're not actually, I mean, they can't make law at all. They haven't even gone through the APA rulemaking procedure, right? They just send out these dear colleague letters and they say, well, you know, we could conduct an investigation. If if we see a disparity, uh, a racial disparity in your suspension numbers, we can conduct an investigation and then you'll be under investigation for the next two years. And you're going to have to like, pour a lot of resources and sending stuff to the feds, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention you're going to get the bad press of being investigated for violations of the Civil Rights Act. And that was more than enough to get 90% of, of large school districts to fall in line with these Dear Colleague letters. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember there was a great- we do the same uh, thing is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to do the same thing. Well, you'd have to, you'd need that sort of entirely new OCR, said, uh, you know, civil rights division staff. I mean, I think that the, 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 the staff is probably a big part of the problem here, but in theory, you're right. It's going to require sort of governmental sort of executive energy and leadership. Um, the, uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah, I'm not saying we're going to do here. it. I have very little confidence we're actually going to do it. I'm saying it can be done and those powers exist. No, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it can be done, and you could do stuff at the uh, at the state level too. Uh, a sort of more, um, you know, less ambitious thing. I've been talking to some people about perhaps like states could um, just make the data available. Like you know, you say get this, get the uh, out of the lawsuits, get like GPA scores and uh, you know by race and uh, SAT scores. You could just you could just pass a law, right? Any you know some conservative state can say you release all that information. What's the admission rate by race? Uh, based on scores and all that other stuff. There's nothing, nothing stopping that. And that could really put pressure on people. I mean, just a sort of sun, you know, sunlight as the, as the best in, uh, disinfectant. Uh, so yeah, I don't want people to think like this is, um, if we get a, you know, if this goes against Harvard um, and UNC, it's still going to matter. I mean, I have a tweet the other day that like Harvard and uh, the, you know, the University of California system and University of the Michigan system, they're sending in, uh, you know, briefs to the Supreme Court saying, look, we've never recovered from, you know, the affirmative action bans. So, you know, you're, you are hurt, you are hurting their ability to sort of shape the kind of student body that they want. They're still doing it. I mean, they're still doing it on the margins. Uh, certainly <laughs> it's going on in UC San Diego is actually really funny. They're just getting in Hispanics because they want to become quote a Hispanic serving institution which just gives them a pile of money. But it's like supposed to be like, oh, people who don't speak English, but they're just letting in Hispanics and not taking Asians you know, anymore. That's, that's what, so I went to UCSD and here is my totally solipsistic, just experiential uh, understanding of the UCSD uh, sort of admissions policies is that for a while, and, and they were just, for a while they were actually less concerned with some of this stuff and they were admitting all of the high a, uh, test score Asian applicants that were getting booted out from uh, Berkeley and UCLA 
Um, and they were kind of happy to do that for a while. But then, of course, uh, there, there, there was this, you know, big outcry. We don't have enough Hispanics. We don't have enough black people, particularly on the on the Hispanic side, because it's San Diego. <laughs> and so, like, there's just a very enormous difference between the other universities in the area um, and UCSD, which was essentially and it wasn't because they were admitting a lot of white people. It was because they were admitting a ton of Hispanics. Like high, they were basically taking the, the applicants from UCLA and Berkeley um, which which helped them bump themselves in the rankings and worked for them for for a while, um, but you know apparently has come to an end. But they always had a particular sort of uh, sore spot about not having a high Hispanic population, particularly because they're in San Diego, right? Like there's a, it's a huge Hispanic population, not just in San Diego proper, um, but also in the other universities uh, around. So they're, they're always like getting compared to you know SDSU, for example. Mm. And that's, that's interesting. So they're, they're tanking their, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, you know, it's like the, uh, I mean, is it, per, so was, was UC, was, uh, UC San Diego, was it like super Asian not that long ago? Yeah. Is that what ended mm-hmm. up happening? Do you yeah. Think and actually they were the last UC to move to holistic admissions. So they were the last, they had a, like a formula and all the UCs at one point had more or less a formula. There was some wiggle room, but because they had so many applicants, they couldn't do an, um, you know, an essay review sort of uh, application that like, I don't know, uh, what would be a good comparison, a small school, like, um, you know, one a small liberal arts school, Reed College or something like that, right? They have fewer applicants, they actually do talk to all the applicants, they read all the essays. I mean, these big UCs, you're talking about 20,000 undergrads on campus. Um, and you're talking about <laughs> tens of 1000s, perhaps 100,000, hundreds of 1000s app- of applicants, right? So they were pretty aggressive at one point about having the score cut off, having a GPA cut off, and then only a small percentage of the applicant pool would, would move to any kind of holistic review. Um, but all of these schools sort of moved to holistic review first, I think, because it didn't, I can't prove it, but I think pretty clearly because it didn't yield the diversity mix they were looking for, right? Um, and UC San Diego was the holdout to that for a long time, because for a while in the rankings, they were nipping the heels of UCLA. Uh, and Berkeley. And I think they saw it as a, okay, well, we're going to keep the old system and we're, we're going to have our SAT scores are going to go up and theirs are going to go down and we're going to start, you know, moving up in the the U S world news rankings. Again, cannot prove any of this, but it's what I observed. And I did work in um, SAT prep and and college admissions for a while uh, uh, privately. So have some background in this, but again, this is very difficult to prove why, I mean, this is, this has been the problem up till now where you can only talk about this, in aggregate numbers, it's impossible to prove why any particular person didn't get in in a selective institution. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Do you think, so, I mean, what, the, what Harvard says, they don't say this, but it's like, you know, are we ready for like all the Ivy Leagues to become Asian? Now I talked to, uh, you know, overwhelmingly Asian. So I talked to like Amy Wax and she's like, you know, she doesn't like affirmative action that let's say, you know, uh, you know, unqualified, uh, underrepresented minorities. Uh, but then like, if you talk to her about like Asian immigration, she's like, well, they're different Asian, you know, immigration is changing the country. And so like, I don't know, it's like Amy Wax. I think I'm just using Amy Wax as a standard for like a lot of conservatives. <laughs> is Amy, is Amy Wax going to be like sort of unhappy when we like don't have as much white, as many white people in like any positions of power <laughs> influence in the country or is that, or conservatives just going to be okay with it because it's just like, you know, we're either going to discriminate in favor of blacks and Hispanics or we're, you know, or we're going to have colorblindness, like, you know, having like a, you know, a more, uh, 
you know, an elite that's more rooted in like, you know, the majority of Americans is probably just not going to happen. Well, I mean, I think the underlying question there is really what merit, what constitutes merit in a meritocracy and how, how well do test scores and GPA measure merit um, and, and the skills necessary, let's say, to be in the elite, to be a, a benevolent and competent elite. Um, Cause I think that's the real underlying question, right? I mean, we could, we can, talk about it in the Amy Wack sense, um, you could also add the nationalistic question, right? Um, because so many of uh, the successful Asian applicants are either first generation like me, Americans and you, I think, right? Um, or uh, uh, the a- actively coming from outside of the country, right? That's sort of a different concern. Um, I-, I think it's not, you know, you could, you could conceivably make the argument that a country's publicly funded universities should serve the people who are funding them, um, and and to that extent, they should favor "quote unquote" their own, which may or may not, you know, line up perfectly racially. Um, I don't know how much I I, I think I, I find it less problematic in in this context, in the university context, in part because I I, I don't know. I would like to see universities stranglehold on the pipeline to the elite get get altogether softer. Right. So in other words, it should matter a lot less what the, the, the latest like class balancing in Harvard is uh, than it does right now. I'm not saying it's totally useless or that you can be a total idiot and get into Harvard. Right. But um, clearly we're, we're sort of fine tuned both our, mer- our universities and our economy. The pinnacle of what they produce is Pete Buttigieg. Right. And I'm not sure that that's actually what we ought to be striving for as a country to produce the most Pete Buttigieg's Buttigieg's and put them in places of power. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of, I've had that thought too, that Harvard becomes Asian, you know, because there is, there are like, you know, people like brag on Harvard for like these personality assessments, but the personality assessments are real. I mean, I think that uh, East Asian applicants do have, you know, we all put all Asians together, different personalities and South Asians and this and like, and, you know, and, and whites and other groups. And it's like, it does show up in sort of the, uh, you know, like C, like CEOs, like East Asians, very underrepresented and sort of, you know, elite, elite, while South Asians, I think are pretty, are, you know, very well represented, sort of commence, uh, commensurate with their, uh, with their standardized test scores. Right. Uh, so I've had this thought that like Harvard becomes just like a school for Asian grinders. Right. And then like Harvard stops being like, People just, people just, Harvard becomes uncool, right? I don't know if Harvard's cool now, but whatever, it's prestigious, right? And so, yeah, I think that like this is sort of a way to, maybe a way to stick it to the universities too. Like, look, you, you, you have to abide by civil rights laws, not the civil rights laws in like the way liberals interpret them, but civil rights laws in the way that, you know, they were, uh, the Civil Rights Act was interpreted in 1964. And, you know, whatever the results are, those are the results. Yeah, I, I'm not, you know, I'm sort of look, a, nothing I'm in the not. Constitution or the Civil Rights Act. Uh, prevents universities from balancing their classes. They just can't do it with respect to race. I mean, let's say that there's a strong decision, right? Um, nothing is preventing them from choosing somebody with, you know, great oboe skills, but slightly lower test scores. Um, the problem is that as over time, you can see that they are systematically preferencing race. Um, I mean, because look, look, this is a big school, small school thing too, right? Um, most liberal arts colleges, like the aforementioned Reed or whatever, um, Williams on the on on the, uh, the East Coast and Pomona on the West Coast, these are are small schools that take into account a much wider 
variety of factors. They really are looking for a personality type. St. John's the same way, right? Um, they really are looking for a diverse in the genuine sense, um, people from different backgrounds, people with different life skills, people with different talents, right? And that's kind of part of the appeal of the university that they're selling is this unique mix of people. So, well, you know, there's nothing in our laws that would prevent a school from doing that. They just can't do it based on race, assuming that this decision goes the right way. Yeah, 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 right. I think that the the race... Yeah, but I think that they're, they're, they are using a race as sort of a proxy. And I, so it's like, it's hard to prove. So like, if, like, imagine like they ban discrimination based on race. I mean, that's what they're saying. That's what, that's actually what they're saying they're doing now though, but nobody believes them. So like they, they judge personalities and they say Asians don't have the greatest personalities, but nobody believes them. Now they are balancing, obviously, but even if they weren't balancing, it's possible they come to the conclusion that different groups, you know, are different, uh, you know, are endowed with different, you know, positive uh, personal qualities that are intangible. Right. Uh, and so I think you're gonna like they're gonna end up sort of they're gonna be in a tough they're gonna be in a tough place because they get they're still gonna want to like select for personality but they're gonna sort of have to rig it so like personalities are <laughs> end up being equal so they're gonna yeah they're gonna have to the, you know i don't know they're gonna be in a, they're gonna be in a tough place but whatever make their make their lives harder i mean they <laughs> they, do, they deserve it i have no contrapunction about making their lives any harder i just i think there's such pernicious forces in american life at this point i there's little that could damage our universities that I wouldn't be in favor of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think I agree for the most part. Yeah. And so, okay. So yeah, I might come tomorrow. I'm going to guess they're going to probably wait till the next week, but yeah, that's, you know, in case it's there tomorrow, you, you have our sort of takes uh, our pre, our pre SFFA takes. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's move on to another article. I, you sent me, and we're going to use adult language here. Uh, to um, describe this article. It's called Unfuckable Hate Nerds. It's in Tablet. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, Josh Howley's book, um, you know, I don't know, on air or off air. Uh, and it's sort of like a, a similar idea, but like with, you know, with just spicier language. Um, the idea is that basically there's these, and they're more focused on sex, while I think, you know, Howley's focused on all kinds of other things. Uh, and the idea here is basically that like, you know, I th- and I think you might have said something like this, that there's like a lot of men out there who are, you know, there's a male privilege sort of narrative, but like a lot of men are just, you know, losers, especially young men, or they feel like losers or society want, treats them like losers, however they are. And they're basically, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to find women for companionship and for love and for sex. And um, women are, you know, women are pursued, right? And you do, like, and some women are not pursued. They are, you know, they talk about, they have like, you know, articles about how, you know, standards of beauty are unfair or whatever. And people, you know, are naturally more sympathetic to women, but like, you know, average or above average women are pursued while below average or not. But you've seen the okay Cupid data, I'm sure, where men will like, you know, they're, they're okay with all women. Like, you know, the average woman's okay. And then women are not very interested in the average man, right? They have a very few men that they really like and then a lot, uh, that they don't. Um, and so that's sort of like the background of the article and it's called for us to have compassion, uh, you know, towards these men. Um, what, what's your, what's your, uh, what, what's your immediate reaction to the piece? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a call for compassion is warranted. Um, it, I think one of the things that women probably only learn as they get older is the coldness with which the universe treats young men. Um, it's not the perspective of a young woman. Like, I don't. It's very difficult, I think, for a young woman to understand that. Um, the, the sort of coldness of, you know, no one treating you very nicely for reasons you don't deserve. You really have to earn like every single 
uh, piece of attention uh, thrown your way. And I don't mean just in the sexual market. I mean, in a hundred other ways and interactions with people. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's warranted. Um, what this made me think about though, this, this article, um, I really think we, we have kind of, if we take a step back and look at it objectively um, with the sexual mores we have, plus I think apps have accelerated this quite a bit. We, we have kind of moved back to a polygamous society model. Um, in which there's, you know, the the most powerful, richest, whatever, most attractive men, a certain percentage of them, they have, you know, 32 wives or whatever it is, right? Um, the only difference is we do it serially. So a certain percentage of, of men are just, you know, running through women on, on these apps, right? Um, not having to give any one of them exclusive commitment. Um, and then there's a, a larger and larger percentage of men on, on, the, on the lower end who are, might be like perfectly average in terms of... Uh, in terms of, of looks or success or whatever qualities, you know, att attracting women, but they are completely ignored because women are chasing a, a small percentage of men at the top. And look, to some extent, there's no point in complaining about this. It is natural, um, but it doesn't really build civilizations and, and sort of enforce monogamy and quite strict uh, so social controls on female sexuality and hypergamy. Um, and, and it should be mentioned quite strict controls on male sexuality as well. Um, they, they kind of force an equilibrium that I think is good for society. Um, and this goes to a piece that I wrote for something called Inside Sources um, about the, the political differences between married men, married women, and then single men and single women. Um, I, I tend to think, I guess I'm, I'm a, a positive, this is one of the few things in which I'm, I'm sort of... Um, I am a positive person. I think, I think it's, I think we have good influences on each other. Right. Um, I think that my husband is probably better off having been hanging out with me um, for the last decade. And I'm definitely better off, you know, having, having spent a ton of time with him in the last decade. Right. We, we influence each other's ideas. We, we balance some of each other's counter tendencies. I think this is, this is kind of true writ large, you know, men and women are comp complementary. Um, and what we're doing is building a society in which, a lot of that growth for men, because we talk a lot about, you know, women civilizing men, sometimes it's a little condescending, but, you know, married men and, and fathers, they do work harder, right? They uh, have more motivation, uh, more more stake in the universe. Uh, and similarly, right, we have all kinds of tropes that are, are largely true about single women, right? That uh, they think too highly of themselves, that they're pouring maternal instincts into this sort of HR bubble. You had that piece about female tears, right? That they're applying these, these sort of... Um, female norms for conflict resolution in places where they might be totally inappropriate. Um, I think a lot of that, that behaviors or the worst behavior of men um, and the worst behavior of women is going to get worse as we have higher and higher numbers of men. So correspondingly, men who will be left out in the cold entirely, those are your unfuckable hate nerds, right? Um, and then on, on correspondingly, you'll have a lot of bitter women who have been chasing men who have no intention of giving them commitment and, and have their own sort of bitterness and uh, towards, towards the opposite sex. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. That's all. I think I agree with most of that. I think one of the thing though, that I sort of maybe have a little bit of a different take or sort of would want to qu uh, qualify is this uh, compassion uh, idea. I, you know, I, I think that like, in some cases, yeah, you want to have compassion because a lot of, uh, like, okay, if you're a man is a literal midget, right? If he's literally, you know, f f four feet tall, 
uh, or he's got some deformity or something. You might look at him and say, okay, he's not gonna, he's not gonna get a lot of attention from, for, for women. Uh, I think with a lot of other men, I think that it's sort of, you are a little bit more in control of your destiny than people, uh, than people tend to think. So when I was, um, so when I was growing up, we had, there, there was something called the, the pickup artist community. I think it's still around to a certain extent, but it was different. It was very positive. It was like, it was selling you at the, at the idea that you, you know, you go out there, you go into the world and like you can, you know, you can basically do anything. You just have to have the confidence and you have, and there's, you know, it, it was oversold to an extent, but you know, there, it was, there was, there was truth to that. There is truth to the idea that you sort of could make your own social reality. Um, right. And then later on, I think it became like, I think the, the, it became more negative. Like men who went online started fighting more negative, uh, messages. And often this is because, you know, I think our culture overall, like our politics and a lot of other things became more negative, like mental health, like, you know, uh, mental health decline over the 2010s. And this was reflected in everything. And this was also reflected in sort of what men were, uh, men were consuming online. Um, but I think that like, you know, the, the problem is when we, you know, you, you're, you know, as a conservative, you know, the problem when we make, <laughs> you know, the problem with compassion, when we start saying this is a group that we have compassion for, you know, you, I think you understand that's how that sort of can be limiting. It can sort of lead to self-defeating behavior. And I, you know, if I was talking to young men and I guess some men, young men do listen to me, it would be, and I, I try to give them more positive message, like, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot, you know, there's, you're you're not so restricted i mean it, if you just have a bit of confidence you have a bit of drive you have a bit of assertiveness uh you know you take care of yourself um the world will open up you believe you might just believe that like it's just hopeless for you um but it's it's re- it's really not um and like you can you know you can better yourself so i i worry like when we get into this yes there are some there are hopeless cases i'm i'm sorry for that. There are hopeless cases out there, but you know, like just actually putting in the effort and caring and like wanting to better yourself will put you usually ahead of like most other guys. And I think that's a message that people just aren't getting enough of today. Well, there's a couple things on how to say in response to that. One for game and pickup artistry to go, you know, mainstream to the point where most young men are hearing those messages. Uh, there would we would have to have a much more honest conversation about female nature than. We are having anywhere. Well, well Andrew, to the I mean, Andrew Tate is, they're, they're getting that message. I mean, there's a market for it. Andrew Tate is, you know, he's yeah, going to jail. Yeah, I mean, the, so first of all, they're getting, I'm not going to use Andrew Tate as the best. Example not, not the best. This, but like, right. even not, somebody not much smarter, like, like, uh, Wasi, uh, Chateau Hartiste, right? Um, a lot of that is about male nature and female nature. And I think it would probably benefit the culture to have oh, that discussion in a more, like, less niche way. Um, that being said, two things. One, uh, a lot of men's response to learning that women are not, in fact, angelic creatures on top of a, a pedestal um, is total despair. Uh, I think that's silly, but there you go. It, it seems to be the case that a lot of men react to that. <laughs> yeah, that that's way. very culturally determined, right? You told about 100 years ago the fact of yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. would have had that reaction. Um, well, actually, I would say 100 years ago, um, men did not often see as much of female nature because there were really strict societal punishments. Right. Um, so it, it, there is a certain disillusionment that I think happens. Um, but, but more than this, I mean, I, I think, I think there are some, in other words, I, yes, there's truth to the pick yourself up by your bootstraps narrative. Um, yes, I am a conservative and I think that that is true. And, and it's also true that it is much more in men's control than women's control, right? Like, 
Uh, there are a few factors that are in women's control, but a lot of them are not, right? You know, a, a woman who's born, um, who's, who's, as they say on the internet, mid, or who has like an ugly face or something like that. Like some things like weight and other things are in your control. Other things like age and your face, you know, certain things are not. So um, there's probably more that men can do to make themselves attractive to the opposite sex than women can to a certain extent. Um, so in that sense, yes, I'm not saying as an individual, you can't navigate the it does seem to me that both sexes are generally less attractive to the other, like on average are less attractive to the other than they would have been in, say, 1953. In other words, women are their average age where they're looking to get married is older. Um, there are more of them with children from other men. They have high body counts. They are fatter. Right. Don't worry. I'm getting to the men. Um <laughs> <laughs> but like they have higher body counts, they're, they're fatter, right? And they don't have a lot of the domestic skills or, or they don't nurture certain feminine uh, traits that, that men very much like on average. Okay. So that's women. Don't worry. Again, I'm not jumping on my <laughs> You're own You're hard sex. on women. I'm hard, I'm hard on men. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the men, I, I think, yeah, they are, they are less, um, at least like a large part of them. There's a larger and larger number of men who have dropped entirely out of the workforce. Um, according to their own reports about themselves, they spend that time um, on, on entertainment and screens, um, whether that's video games or, or um, actually even worse, most of them report that most of what they spend their day on um, are screens while high. Uh, that's not going to be attractive to women. There's no way that is like trying to force young men to be attracted to like, older fat feminists. It's just like against nature. Women are never going to find this attractive. Um, <laughs> so that's on one hand. And then also I think just the general retreat from friendship, from community, from interpersonal skills has hit men harder than women. Um, because if a girl is shy and introverted and like looks at her shoes while, you know, talking to people, if she's pretty, guys will still find her attractive. But if guys are like that, you know, women are not going to find them attractive and, you know, on aggregate. So like, I, I think it, it seems like both men and women have lost their social skills, but it's it, in the same way that the obesity crisis is probably making women more unattractive to men than men and unattractive to women. I think the opposite is true of like this sort of Zoomer social skills crisis where they're more used to relating to people digitally online than they are walking up to someone and holding a conversation. Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, have you, uh, yeah, I mean, I did, I've done a bit of, not that much traveling, but I was in, uh, I did a semester studying in Russia. I almost don't want to mention that because now people will be like, oh, he got recruited by Putin or something because everything in Russia is, is like, is like scary. But, uh, but I did do a semester study abroad when I was in undergrad. And, um, I was just, I mean, you say like women can't, like, you know, they can lose weight because of ugly face, but like, look, like makeup and like nice dress and like, maybe the Slavic genes are just, are, which is better. And that's, you know, that's probably part of it, but my goodness, like every woman in St. Petersburg, you know, was really dressed up nice, looked good. I mean, the average, like, you know, of, of a woman there was at the 90th percentile of, you know, what Amer American woman is. I, I would look for like, do I see a fat young woman? Do I see a 20 year old woman who's actually fat by American standards? And I, I literally could not find one like across the whole semester. And I, and I rode this uh, St. Petersburg Metro, you know, every day. So I saw tons and tons of people, the obesity rate must be, you know, must be zero. Um, at least in the big in the big cities, or it was, you know, uh, when I studied there uh, for thirteen or fourteen years ago. Uh, and, and you're right. And the Russian men, by 
<laughs> this is funny. They were all like, they were all slobs. They're all wearing nothing. I think maybe the Russian women are just trying to find a foreign husband or something. Yeah, the Russian men are just like slobs. They all have, they all had mullets. I don't know if this is, if they still do today, but they had mullets. Yeah, the baby bang. The baby bang look, you know, like the little yeah. fringe right here. Yeah. Tracksuit. Yeah. They all had their tracksuits. Yeah. It was, although it was Orange not, Gucci um, shirt. Although I did get the sense that they were sort of masculine and so like just not caring in that way might have been, you know, might have been attractive, but not, it's not like Russia. I mean, but like, so like the sexes, it seemed like the sexes were both somewhat more attractive to each other. That being said, I don't know. Russia doesn't have like healthy demographics in any way, not birth rates, not, uh, marriage rates, not, uh, Maybe the divorce rate is low. I haven't looked up the divorce rate. Maybe maybe it's not high. But you know, I, I you know, I don't know. I don't know if they're like if the sex recession and stuff there too. So, yeah, it's interesting in the American context in particularly. You know, we we seem to, yeah, the sex is becoming less attractive to each other. That's true. Asia, East Asia, yeah. I mean, I, don't, I, I I'm guessing the men are still attracted to the women. It doesn't seem the women are attracted. It doesn't seem the women are attracted to the men. I mean, the, 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 uh, you know, the sort of the, um, the rates of like, you know, celibacy, involuntary celibacy, uh, birth rates, all that stuff in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. It's just, it's just, uh, you know, it's just basically bottomed out. Uh, so it's, yeah, you're right. You know, the sex is not being attracted to each other. I don't know. Like, it's, it's like attraction is good. <laughs> it's like good for your life. So I think that like, even if like, it doesn't have to be justified with like a higher birth rate, although that would be, you know, that would be great. Um, just like being attractive to the opposite sex is good in itself because you, you, you find members of the opposite sex, but also because I think people feel good, right? There's something in our nature where a woman wants to be pretty and wants to be desired, wants to be, even if she was on an island, I think that, you know, women, I think what would be better, you know, would feel better looking good than not looking good. And men the same way, being, being assertive, going out there in the world, doing your own thing, you know, uh, you know, being ambitious. These are just generally good things, even if it gets you no women and it will, it will make you better with women. Um, but even if it didn't, like this is just healthiness. And I, and I think we, I think we agree that this is sort of, you know, the, the, the denial of sex differences is a big thing because you're sort of taking, you know, you're taking sort of a fundamental part of like what makes people who they are and what makes them, you know, have, have a happy, healthy life and relationships with others. No, sure. Um, look, I, I don't want to get too didactic about any of this. This is sort of a uh, very big number level observations. Um, but it does go to this like, oh, you can just fix it yourself um, narrative. I think it, Yes, to some extent you can. There's a lot of choices that are within your individual control. But also we do all live in a particular regime with particular cultural commitments, particular sexual mores, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it, it would be wrong not to look at those mores and ask, are they producing, you know, happy, healthy people? Um, are they producing men and women who are finding each other and, and falling in love and starting families? Yeah. Clearly not. You know, yeah. clearly not. And that doesn't mean that every single person, obviously, I always have to make this. I hate this like tyranny of exceptions discourse where, you know, as soon as you make any general statement, there's 20 people who raise their hands and say, I know an exception as though that that proves anything. Um, but yeah, I think overall, these the sexual revolution has not uh, created an enormous amount of happiness for either side. And it's funny because, you know, if you look, go back, look at videos in the 70s or whatever, it seems clear to me that they're coasting on essentially the fun part was releasing all of those sexual norms, right? When, um, you know, when the background was sort of formed, a lot of men and women who have been formed by the previous norms and they got to take the lid off. And, and I, I even believe that a lot of them had, had some fun, but then now 
if you go down to millennials, um, I think the one thing that is shared by the left and the right, they have totally different views of it, is that nobody's, you know, nobody thinks relations between the sexes are good or better than they were. You know, um, everyone seems to be pretty disappointed in how things are, um, whether personally or, or sort of looking around at, um, at, at what's happening on the aggregate level. We all seem to, to think that things have gone wrong somehow. Um, I'm, this isn't a way in which I'm very socially conservative, but I'm not what you would call trad. Um, only because, not because I don't think it would be a good thing to be, but because it seems clear to me that we're going to have to build something new that just turning back on uh, snapping our fingers and quote unquote returning to the past. Um, I don't see a way that it's possible. Uh, look, if somebody can prove me wrong, then, then fine. I'm happy to, to be proven wrong. But um, what we are going to have to do is, I think, the way forward is just to popularize and really restart the conversation in a much more mainstream way about sex differences. And then from there, we can negotiate how we'd want to set some of these cultural norms, right? But right now, we're setting these cultural norms with no respect for the underlying biology, no respect for the different personality clusters of men and women, no respect for the strengths and weaknesses, relatively speaking, of men and women, right? Um, and, and no respect for the different roles that they play when they come together in relationships at all. And again, I'm not being didactic about any of this. There's plenty of room for individual exception. And also there's plenty of room, like successful societies have been built both before and after Christendom, right? On a lot of different sets of sexual mores, but this particular one that we have seems to be leading um, towards us not liking each other very much. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the, uh, you know, I think the question is like, it's sort of a, um, um, uh, you know, a, a question of focus. So like when you say stuff like, um, you know, we need to negotiate these norms or like, you know, we have to have like a conversation, like it's like, everyone, you know, having a conversation or, or having a negotiation. I, I know what you're, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Right. But I, I think that that's sort of like, you know, sort of like a metaphor that might uh, mislead us. I mean, I, I think what I say, like men should, you know, change, women should change too, but you know, they should listen to people who, you know, preach healthy things. You know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I like, I, I like Jordan Peterson, you know, I like Andrew Tate for all, all his faults. I think probably more harm than good just because he's, he's counteracting something that's very, very bad um, in the culture. Um, but that's, but that's what it's going to look like, right? It's going to look like individuals. It's going to like, I don't think like, like, okay, like I want to, you know, uh, change civil rights law and all that. And I want to, you know, whatever, no trends in sports and all that. Yeah, good. I, I don't think that that's necessarily the answer to this cultural malaise. It might help a little bit. Uh, but I think what it's, what it's going to be is going to be private institutions, influencers, intellectuals, like just regular people, you know, maybe healthy, you know, churches and communities, uh, that, that build something else. Right. And I, I think that's sort of our way out of this. Do you, do you agree? I guess in in some superficial sense, yes, in a deeper sense, no. I mean, the discourse is what we have, uh, is what we've substituted for self-government in the age where you don't have something as small as the Greek city-state, right? Um, where you don't know all your neighbors and you can't actually have a true deliberative process in democracy. You have the discourse. You are, you, there's no way to know all your fellow citizens. There's no way to actually have a real conversation with them, what we have is the discourse. Um, 
but that's, you know, that's the case with all of these different political issues. It doesn't seem to me to be sort of a, a, a knockdown point um, against it. At least personally, I think what, what could be very helpful is just a repeated assertion of the biological differences and scientific differences between men and women. And I think it's really important that those don't stop at the neck. Because what we have right now are an increasing chorus of people who are willing to acknowledge that Leah Thomas is a man and we've thrown him in to the pool with a bunch of women and he's going to dominate at the 200 meter butterfly, right? And that's great and it's important. And IWF, my org, we do a ton of stuff related to that. And I think it's a really important issue because it, it speaks to the obvious, right? Um, but we also have to have the conversation about the sex differences above the neck. We have to talk about you know, neurological differences. We have to talk about uh, psychological differences, right? Um, how some psychological traits are massively more common in women than in men and vice versa. Um, how some, some desires for happiness are probably going to be different in aggregate between women and men. Like those are the kind of conversations that actually matter a lot more, I would say, to people making individual decisions that are going to leave them happier or less happy in life then who swims a 200 meter butterfly faster, right? If you say, if you say that sex doesn't matter for dating, for family formation, uh, for career choices, right? For uh, work-life balance, to use that gay phrase, right? Um, if you say that sex ought not to matter for any of those things, um, th those things all matter a lot more to the average person's life. Most people are not Olympians and most people after high school or college are not going to be participating in sports, right? So, um, I think those things, or they might not be the, the poor, unfortunate women who are being thrown in with male predators in, in prisons because we can't acknowledge that they're male. These things matter. Again, I write on them often and, and work on them often, but um, for the conversation that we're having, I think the more, in, the more important element to, to really sort of push out as much as possible and as much as the mainstream allows it to happen is, yeah, but there are also actual biological, just as real differences between men and women's brains as there are between their sex characteristics. Yeah. So you're thinking like, so sometimes is it like, sometimes you hear that, like, you know, people will talk about women soldiers or women cops and they'll always talk about the physical standards. Oh, you can't lower the physical standards, right? That's what conservatives will say and liberals want. But then there's like, okay, if you lower the physical or if you don't lower, if they can meet the physical standards, the assumption is, well, there's not going to be any personality traits that make men more suited for these jobs than women are right and i've always thought like you should i mean you could you, you know there's no there's, there's no reason to have women cops or there's no reason to have women soldiers right like you you even if you don't uh you know maybe there's like some case where you know whatever it's a muslim country well, israel is always the, the case and of course israel is a much much smaller country than the united states with, with much bigger enemies like relatively speaking so that's it it's more necessary yeah Women are apparently good at being snipers for some reason. So I don't know. I, I shouldn't be too categorical that it's impossible. No, for, I, you're not, you know, you're not yeah. being too categorical. I think what you're saying is true. I'm just saying people always point, again, this tyranny of exceptions. They point to Israel and they talk to, about the fact that women, all women between certain ages serve in the military. And there are jobs that women can do in the military um, just as well as men, because especially with all the technological stuff that goes on. Um, but to your point, is it necessary does does the the unit morale, for example, suffer from having a mixed sex environment? This is something 
that seems obvious to me that that um, there are massive problems, for example, that aircraft carriers now have to deal with because they have, you know, thousands of young men and women uh, on a ship. Um, things happen. Fraternization happens. Uh, and then that's something the military has to deal with. And, and the question is, um, is, is that is the addition of those women as opposed to the equivalent men who would be in their positions instead worth that? that additional problem that is caused by throwing the sexes in together. Now, maybe the answer is yes, um, but maybe it's no. And we shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't sort of lay out the conclusion in advance and assume that the quote unquote diversity contribution of women in those jobs is actually outweighing the other costs of, of mixing men and women in very tight spaces where they, they can't have privacy from each other. Yeah. And I think yeah. And I think what you're saying is, I think something that I, what you're getting at is something that I agree with, which is that like, there are downstream implications of sort of whatever the military or the police or schools, whatever, uh, thinking men and women are the same from the neck up. Right. Um, you know, it's like the, the idea that less like, you know, it takes away sort of the common sense, uh, you know, and it does have an effect where you're just like watching, you know, women like leading SWAT teams. Every time I turn on a cop show, right, or an FBI show, it's a, it's a, it's a skinny Hispanic woman leading, leading a SWAT team, right? There are sort of like implications for like, you know, how you think about sort of being attractive to the opposite sex. Like, like these, there's some men, for example, like in these insult forms who think it's all looks that women are just like men. And so that leads to hopelessness because you've been taught your whole life that women and men are the exact well, it's same projection thing. that you actually need to yeah. be taught out of, right? All people you need to, exactly, project yeah. unless they've observed otherwise, or somebody teaches them otherwise, right? What, what point of reference do you have initially other than yourself? But yeah, there's a huge amount of projection going on. I think particularly between these groups of, of women and men who are respectively just not having deep and lasting interactions with the opposite sex. I mean, this goes back to family formation as well. The number of people, the number of girls who have never had a close and lasting relationship, sexual or otherwise with a man, the number of girls who don't have a father, right. Um, in the picture don't have siblings and therefore don't have brothers or, or um, fewer siblings. And then their interactions with men are, are brief and unpleasant um, to a certain degree. You can see how that engenders a real bitterness. And, and likewise, you know, for a lot of young men, they don't have sisters. Um, you know, more of them have, have mothers just simply because single motherhood is a lot more common than, um, than, than single fatherhood. But anyway, you can see how there's a higher and higher percentage of people who don't ever observe directly um, in, in a, a loving environment, the differences between the sexes. Uh, and that makes them more susceptible, I think, to, to a real kind of bitterness about the opposite sex. And then also to the projection that you're talking about, where like, yes, I, I noticed this with a lot of the the sort of, uh, I guess, what Tablet called the, what is it, the <laughs> unfuckable hate, <laughs> hate kids or whatever. I can't I remember what it is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of them massively overestimate how important looks are to women. It's not that women don't care about looks, but they massively overestimate it. And it's very clear that it's coming from their own direct experience. Exactly. And the women, the inverse of this is women underestimate looks. So sometimes you see women, right. <laughs> how do they get this out or, of shape? Or they, well, they, they say like, why wouldn't a man want me? I have two college degrees. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, this was fun, Inez. Uh, we'll uh, see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>